Welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Rebecca Weidmann, and I am very happy to be joined by Nicholas Turiano, Damaris Ashwanden, and Yannick Stefan, who are experts at the intersection between personality psychology and health psychology. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Maybe you can all introduce yourself, and then we can jump into the questions. Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is uh, Nick Turiano, and I'm an associate professor at West Virginia University in the Lifespan Developmental Psychology Unit of our department. And my main focus is on understanding the linkages between personality and health, so exploring those mechanisms, why personality is associated with health. Happy to be here today. Hello, everyone. My name is Damaris Ashwanden. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Florida State University. My research focuses on personality and cognitive health, in particular also cognitive aging. And I'm originally from Switzerland. I did my grad school at the University of Zurich. And yes, I'm glad to be here too. Thank you for the invitation, Rebecca. Hello, I'm Yannick Stefan. I'm an associate professor at the University of Montpellier in France. I'm working in the physical activity and sports sciences department as well as the pharmaceutical faculty. And uh, my research is focused on the link between the contribution of personality and markers of biological, physical, and cognitive health in old age, as well as um, the mechanism linking personality to health as well also. Uh, on the role of health in personality changes across adulthood. And thank you for the invitation, and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming. You all work at the intersection between personality psychology and health psychology. What drew you to studying the link between people's personality and who they are and their health? When I think back of what got me started in this field, it really was working in retirement communities. When I was an undergraduate, I had two opportunities to do internships in retirement communities. And some of the older adults, you know, had, you know, cognitive decline and physical disabilities, but they were still really engaged with kind of life and thriving. And as an activities coordinator, my job was to get people to, you know, partake in cognitive exercises, you know, social things and things just to keep them engaged. And a lot were really excited. And there were other people that weren't at all and didn't engage. And I kept thinking, there's a dichotomy here of people that seem to be aging yet thriving. And some folks who just seemed like they've given up, whether their health and cognition was bad or good, it didn't matter. And I was thinking about it through my coursework and was like, there's kind of personality differences between these people. And that's really what sparked me to really want to explore how can personality be kind of an idea of understanding how people age successfully or not so successfully. My story is actually similar, but maybe uh, on a more theoretical level, so to speak. So I think my interest was initially prompted by a lecture during my bachelor studies, which was in fact on the inter-individual variability of cognitive decline. So I was fascinated by the fact that some older adults are able to maintain their cognitive performance in older age, while some show decline and some even develop cognitive impairment or dementia. So that was one part of it. And then at the same time, I also attended a seminar on personality and health, where I learned that personality is a strong predictor of physical health. And I was still wondering, well, is personality also a predictor of cognitive health? And yeah, that's 
then how I found my master thesis and my PhD thesis and so on. My story is, a, is slightly different because it was a long time ago. One of my former PhD students was working on the psychological predictors of sports-related injury. I was working at this time on stress and coping, which was a really different field. And my student had the idea of examining whether personality was related to perceived vulnerability to injury. And at this time, I didn't know anything about personality. And immediately, I've been really, really, really fascinated by this field of research, and in particular, by, by the extent to which factors within the individuals, including enduring patterns of thoughts, feelings, and behavior, were able to predict once else, decades later, independent of biological factors. In my mind, it was really surprising, it was really fascinating, and I still feel the same, the same feeling when I'm thinking about personality and else, that is, wow some stuff, some factors within the individuals are able to drive and to guide one's health over, across the lifespan and are able to predict how well an individual will age. Cool, thank you so much. You have covered some of your research focus already, but maybe you can tell me more about a current research project that you're working on right now. As I told before, I'm really interested in the contribution of personality on markers of biological health, physical health, and cognitive health, and the reciprocal relationships between health and, and personality. And uh, my current research is mostly focused on the identification of the link between personality and objective markers of functional health, for example, uh, gait speed, grip strength, and uh, peak exploratory flow, uh, among others. I'm also working uh, with Damaris and the team in FSU uh, on personality and cognitive health. And in particular, we have an important line of research on investigating the mechanisms linking personality to cognition. In, in particular, the biological process uh, linking personality to cognition. My research focuses on personality and the risk of dementia, but also cognitive complaints and subjective cognitive decline. So for those of you who are not familiar with cognitive aging psychology, subjective cognitive decline is the perceived memory decline or also decline in any other cognitive ability without objective cognitive dysfunction. And it is considered one of the potential earliest stages of dementia. And one of my current projects actually focuses on the association between personality traits, so the five-factor model personality, and risk of objective cognitive impairment in individuals with subjective cognitive decline. So when I think about my research, I really at heart is understanding these mechanisms connecting personality to health. So personality will be associated with the behaviors you engage in, your stress physiology, the social networks you have, and ultimately those mechanisms may explain, you know, why you have poor health and shortened um, life expectancy. But one of the areas I've kind of got in in the past few years is understanding this connection of how childhood adversity and personality fit together. And when I talk about childhood adversity, it's examining um, usually retrospective reports of whether people have been exposed to, as children under the age of 18 typically, whether they have been exposed to 
sexual, physical, emotional trauma, bullying, discrimination, being exposed to traumatic environments like crime, war, things of that nature. And I'm really fascinated at how that can impact personality development. And by impacting personality development, a lot of these individuals have suboptimal personality profiles, and that leads to poor behaviors, poor social networks, more stress physiology, which impacts health. So kind of connecting all that dots is really exciting for me. But one of the most exciting parts of that is there's some individuals that show resilience where you look at these individuals and they've been exposed to some very bad things in their childhood, but you look by their personality profiles, they look great. They're thriving in life. And, and you have to question, what is it about them? Somehow they're resilient. What is it about them? How did they adapt to their environment and succeed? And understanding how that unfolds naturalistically in some, that resilience, as some of us call it, that gives us ideas of interventions to help potentially those that don't have that naturalistic ability to overcome challenges they've experienced early in their life. So that's kind of some recent research that's kind of the side of what I've been doing in conjunction with the personality health mechanisms, but it's all connected in some way. All of your research sounds very fascinating and it has these real life outcomes and is very consequential for everybody. It sounds like the link between personality and health is like a given to all of you. Can you give me some examples of what the literature says why personality should be linked to health? So maybe this is something that might not be intuitive to some in our audience. A lot of the work that I have shows that behaviors such as substance use, specifically those people higher in neuroticism, those that uh, you know endorse more anxiety, emotional reactivity, they're more likely to self-medicate with substances like alcohol and tobacco. And we know that those behaviors are really damaging over time. And I think that's been demonstrated by a lot of folks in the field. And it's pretty robust that we, we know that this is, is, is one of those pathways um, that connects personality to health. I would also add, um, for example, additional behaviors like sedentary behaviors and physical inactivity. For example, there are several research who showed that personality is related to uh, worse outcomes in part because it could be associated with a lower level of physical activity to sedentary behaviors. But also, I was thinking about other processes like obesity. There are also uh, research investigating uh, the extent to which uh, biological mechanism. I know that Nick worked on paper on personality and mortality and uh, how personality could be linked to to mortality risk through its association with, for example, inflammatory marker or biological dysfunctioning. And uh, I think that we have an accumulation of research uh, showing that there are multiple pathways through which personality could contribute to uh, health and cognitive outcomes, behavioral, biological, psychological pathways. And I would also add to those, at least for cognitive decline and cognitive health, um, the engagement in cognitive activities, for example, but also maybe coping strategies. For example, we know based on previous literature that individuals who are high on neuroticism tend to um, engage in less beneficial coping strategies, at least in the long term, for example, like um, wishful thinking, while individuals high on conscientiousness tend to engage in more beneficial coping strategies like cognitive restructuring. And obviously, these coping strategies are associated with stress 
and coping with stress. And that also has an effect on brain health and cognitive health. Can I actually ask you guys a question? Have you guys done any work where you've connected the personality, sedentary behavior, and the cognitive outcomes? Because we know that that's just, you know, when we look at dementia and Alzheimer's disease, that those that maintain that cognitive ability later in life, it seems to be protective. But have you connected all those dots in, in a paper? I did not. Did you, Yannick? Uh, I did not too, but uh, I know, uh, for example, uh, a paper from Mark Allen, who connected uh, personality to uh, sedentary behaviors and memory. Uh, he, he showed that uh, conscientiousness was associated to a better memory performance in part through its association with uh, less sedentary behavior and more physical activity. There is at least one, one paper with showing that uh, physical activity or a physically active lifestyle is likely to explain in part, because it was a relatively small uh, mediating effect in explaining part the connection between personality and, uh, and cognitive health. I would add also another mechanism, which is not a mechanism per se, but it's, a, it's something which could help to, uh, to better understand the connection between personality and health. You know, it's related to genetic sharing. That is, we know that some personality traits uh, within the five-factor model share genetic factors with some health-related outcomes. For example, we found some years ago, a couple of years ago, that uh, uh, neuroticism was associated with poor sleep quality, in part because there was some kind of genetic sharing between neuroticism and sleep quality. But the effect is really, 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 really small. And it's just a small part of the, of the explanation. And it is also uh, an hypothesis for personality and dementia. Uh, Damaris knows this, uh, this hypothesis of genetic sharing. It's another part of, of the picture. What have been the most exciting findings that you, you or other people found in the personality health field in recent years? I can go first on this one. So for me, and or I think my field, it was um, the finding of Benjamin Chapman and colleagues who looked at um, the personality in high school or at the age of participants in high school and the high school personality predicted risk of dementia over 50 years later. And to me, this was really a fascinating finding because the sample was also huge. I think it was over 80,000 participants. And that supports the hypothesis that personality is rather a risk or protective factor of dementia rather than a prodorm or a symptom of dementia. So for me, it was really that study that I can recall. It's exactly the same paper I was thinking about. I'm really, really, really impressed by the extent to which personality could predict dementia. And I was impressed by this paper. And I always think about this paper. I always talk about this paper in my teaching classes because this is something really huge. And uh, it's impressive how personality in adolescence, in high school, could predict dementia in risk in, a, in old age. And I also add another, another paper, a more recent paper uh, from Antonio Terracciano uh, on the link between personality and Parkinson's disease. This is one of the most impressive paper I've seen because uh, neuroticism was related to a higher risk of incident Parkinson's disease uh, years after. And, uh, and wow, an impressive one. 
So that was my, no, that wasn't my paper. I'm just kidding. It's actually two papers really for me. I feel early in my graduate program, people said, oh, who cares? Why are you studying personality? You can't do anything about it. And we would say, no, personality does naturalistically change. And maybe we could change some aspects of it. And people were like, no, this is hogwash. This is black magic. It's not possible. That's, you know, computer programming. You're going to turn children into robots. And then Brent Roberts came out with his, you know, huge paper saying, hey, look at all these studies done that show, hey, as part of natural interventions or antidepressant medication usage, personality does change. So there is this possibility. And that was finally like something I could have and give to people and say, no, it is legitimate. You can do this. And I feel like the field has kind of been in flux since that paper. That's been almost, what, 10 years, if, if not, um, that has come out. And it wasn't until teaching my personality course to undergrads, maybe was it last year, two years ago, I was looking more into well, what's been done in the personality kind of change field. And the paper that I'm thinking about right now is by um, Dr. Alman and Steiger, where they talk about the personality um, coach or peach program, the smartphone kind of app to potentially change personality. And it made me think of like, wow, there may be some like, very minor, not invasive kind of ways that we can push personality in a more protective direction. And I hadn't thought about that before. I'm thinking this is going to be cognitive behavioral therapy. It's going to be really long-term. And are we actually ever going to get people to go into a doctor's office to try to change their neuroticism level? And it kind of hit me that like, wow, we, we, we're looking at this a little bit wrong, or maybe I realized I was looking at it wrong, that there may be a little bit more of a simplistic approach to helping people, you know, shape their personality that will result in better behaviors and better stress reactions, um, things of that nature. So that's kind of what got me excited more recently. You just said personality can be changed. So does that mean that you can also change your health by changing your personality? Has that link ever been done? Or is this just a theoretical assumption? I'd say it's still a little bit theoretical. Um, there's a little bit of support that's more correlational where we look at individuals that have showed naturalistic personality change and then using some fancy statistics, some cross lags, some autoregressive latent trajectory models, some fancy stuff that I still am trying to wrap my head around. Um, you need lots of data for this. And they do show and suggest that, hey, the people that did experience the person I changed, that came first, then the health did change. But this isn't something I think where we're going to see, hey, you change personality and you know, next month you're going to be showing a better health profile. Like This is going to take some time for you to see those health benefits. And then there's the whole idea of, is there a critical window of do you need to see that personality change earlier in life because there's a certain age where the damage may be already done to your stress physiology or your you know, body mass index is so high that it's going to be hard for you to re-regulate you know, glucose levels and, and whatnot. But I'm not aware right now of any randomized trial where people have said, okay, half of you are randomly going to get a intervention for your high neuroticism, half aren't, and we're going to compare you over some long-term duration. I, I'm not aware of anything that has, has looked at that yet. I don't know if the other folks on the call have seen uh, anything. I think that there is at least one paper from Miriam Stiger 
who investigated this question and found that improving consciousness using such interventions you, you mentioned before uh, is related to lower substance use in the, over time. I think that uh, my memory is good. It's, it was maybe last year, maybe Damaris, you, you know this paper and you can confirm or not. Yeah, um, I, I don't uh, remember the year it was, but she also did some work on actually increasing self-discipline. This was sample of, I think, 200 participants or something like that. And self-discipline can be considered as a facet of conscientiousness, right? She showed that then obviously self-discipline increased after this intervention. And if I'm not completely wrong, I think also physical activity increased. But I'm not, I do not recall the details on that paper. But there seems to be maybe so a few uh, links, but obviously it has not been examined at a large scale yet. Conceptually, it makes sense though, right? Like if yeah. you improve a trait and you would hope then you would see, yeah, behavior change. It's just how long do you need to see that behavior change Could to, to, to yeah. result yeah. in health, you know? Mm -hmm protection yeah it's interesting and i'm also wondering if it's context related if i'm becoming super conscientious at my work then i'm gonna work 12 hours a day and i'm gonna have maybe more stress not have a good work-life balance and this will actually not be good for my health but if i become more conscientious in terms of my health then i'll go for a jog every morning or whatever and i'm wondering if if maybe changes can backfire depending on the contextual factors of that change and uh, it depends also whether you you want to be more conscientious or not. I think that it was one of the most of, of the most important moderators in recent research. That is, if people want to be more conscientious, then interventions will work. If people don't want to be more conscientious, uh, I think that it works too. <laughs> but it was for neuroticism. That is, people who want to decrease in neuroticism we are more sensitive, we are more receptive to interventions designed to decrease neuroticism. But at the end of the day, we don't know exactly how it could impact health. And I agree with Nick on the fact that we need months, years to uh, observe such effects of personality or uh, of uh, induced changes in personalities by non-pharmacological interventions and to see whether such changes could impact health or not. And I think I will be retired at this time, but uh, <laughs> maybe the younger scholars will be able to do that. Yeah, no, I think this is a really important point. We first have to investigate also how long-lasting are these personality changes that we see from interventions. But then also, as Yannick highlighted, and I think we haven't highlighted it enough before when we talked about Miriam Steger and colleagues' paper, the PEACH um, intervention, is that participants clearly have uh, the wish or the, uh, yeah, it's a requirement that you want to change your personality and then also you have a personality goal and I think also it is important that the intervention components are not only on one level like they cannot be behavioral only so if I I don't know go for a walk every day that doesn't mean that 
my conscientiousness increases as a whole, I think, because what we know from the Desera model from Cornelia Rouge and Brent Roberts is that, first of all, personality is not behavior only, right? It's also thoughts and it's feelings. And to really achieve our personality development or personality change, this intervention has to be, um, I think, in different contexts um, across domains. So not only single behaviors and then also um, on several levels, like implicit like self-reflection, but also observed by others and so on. When we think about any type of therapeutics, we always talk about, you know, what's the silver bullet? Is there one thing that you can do? And, you know, in the case of personality, I'd say, okay, maybe it's five silver bullets. But what we hope is by addressing personality and having someone adapt to their environment, you're hoping that it spills over into many contexts of their life. When we think about just like regular psychotherapy for any kind of problem that someone's having, you know, you're not addressing just a work problem. You're addressing who they are, how they think about things, you know, how they respond to stressors. And you would hope that would spill over from work to your home life. And I think that's why us personality psychologists are really excited about this idea of Instead of just, you know, getting someone to stop drinking or to work on their, their body weight, you're, you're helping them in, in a more upstream area, such as their personality. So you see downstream benefits in behaviors, the way they think, think about things, how their body responds to stress, et cetera. Yeah, it's exciting, but I, but I agree. I feel like we're, we still have so much work to do that I may be retired as well. Maybe I'll be <laughs> one of these people in the study someday and they find out how my personality early in life led to me dying earlier or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And just to, to add a small point on, on Damari's comments, there is a study from Nathan Hudson, I think, which revealed that behavioral challenges were, uh, were able to lead to personality changes. That is, people wanted to be more conscientious, were presented behavioral changes to achieve on a weekly basis. And these behavioral changes included behavior per se, but also self-regulation, but also emotion regulation, which lead to improved conscientiousness. But we don't know what happened after. I guess there's something positive in being more conscientious and maybe independent of the context. But we all try to be more conscientious. I try to be less neurotic, but it's difficult. Thanks. Yeah, that brings me to my next point. So in recent literature, we read about the term healthy personality in that lower levels of neuroticism and higher levels of conscientiousness are super beneficial. And there's like this perfect profile that we kind of all aspire to be. It's also linked to better health. Is there any evidence about what the neurotic and less conscientious among us who might not have resources to go to therapy can do to lead healthier lives? We know, for example, that less conscientious people, are, for example, are less physically active, are more use more sedentary behaviors. Then we can think that interventions targeted toward behavioral changes could be useful with such profile. I'm not aware of any interventions targeted toward uh, less conscientious people or people higher on neuroticism and focused on behavioral changes. But I guess that these Individuals are engaged in a risky lifestyle and then may benefit from such interventions designed to change our lifestyle. At the theoretical level, it 
it's it's okay, but uh, I'm not sure that um, there are some papers or research on on such intervention effects. It's a very good question, but it's a very tricky question. And um, I guess one theoretical way would be to work on changing your personality. But again, we have already talked about it, personality interventions are in its infancy. Um, and still, I believe it's a, a small habit changes that one can um, try to do in daily life, like going for a walk once in a while or eating something healthy, at least because that's what we know from the literature with the link from personality and health behaviors. I think it's also just self-awareness. A lot of people don't realize that they're emotionally reactive or they're anxious all the time. Sometimes people just need to have some self-awareness. And that's part of what, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy does is anyone going to, to therapy um, can attest to that. Like that therapist is trying to help you identify what your weaknesses are. And for someone to know that, wow, I'm not really organized. I'm not really responsible. You know, they may not see that as conscientiousness. You know, we do as, as scientists because we study it. But just showing them that, the, hey, there are some areas you could work on here. And, you know, I, I have a health coach as part of my insurance that we have to do to have a lower deductible. And this, this health coach is like, I'm seeing her address my personality of like how to get me to set goals and start off small and ramping it up. And like, she's not changing my conscientiousness because I'm already pretty high on that, but I can see how for some folks that that could work. And, and that links back to like the, the peach intervention and how these brief kind of interventions can be potentially helpful um, for folks. So it doesn't, as I said before, you don't have to go to psychotherapy. It could be a app-based kind of program. And I think that's a, a cool possibility that we just need more research on. Maybe we, uh, we have to learn these uh, less conscientious people how to manage their health. I think that not only they have to uh, be more aware of their lack of responsibility, of their low self-discipline, but also they need to learn how to do with their health because people who are more conscientious know how to deal with their health, know how to manage their health, well, knows the kind of behavior they have to engage in to preserve their health. And people with lower conscientiousness or higher neuroticism, they don't know how to do. They don't know how to do. And uh, I think that, for example, health education could be a promising avenue to uh, help these people not only to be aware of their failure, of their lack of self-discipline, but also how to do, how to behave to preserve their health, maybe. Nick, you've also done studies on healthy neuroticism. Can you explain what that is? Because it sounds good yeah, to me so, as a neurotic person. So healthy neuroticism came out of, Howard Friedman talked about it in the 90s, more theoretically. Um, Brent Roberts had talked about it in some of his papers as well. Uh, but it was a lot of just theoretical work. And it wasn't until I started working on my dissertation that we found that, hey, these people that are highly neurotic, but also highly conscientious seem to have the best physiological profile when we were looking at interleukin-6. So we were curious about this and thought, oh, it's just weird data. It's just a, a unique sample. And then we started to look around the literature and found more and more evidence of this idea of you know, these people could exist. There is some work that finds no effects that it's not better to be highly neurotic, high conscientious, but there's also a substantial amount that do find that 
not only is it not bad to be highly neurotic and, and highly conscientious, but it's better potentially for you. And we're still trying to figure that out. We don't understand it. I've been kind of known as this, oh, healthy neurotic person. And, and I don't want to be in terms of my research. It's just, it keeps coming up and I always have to explore it. And it comes out in another data set with another set of variables and outcome. And I go, I can't believe it. It's coming out again. Whether a healthy neurotic, the beneficial part is that conscientiousness that helps drive that anxiousness and, and whatnot into protective directions. I don't know if it's conscientiousness necessarily, or it's some other factor. Folks have looked at this differences by your health status, by the context, your socioeconomic climate you live in. That could mean whether neuroticism being high is good or bad for you. I don't know. Um, but it's an interesting theoretical, but now empirical kind of data we have to kind of explore a little bit more. Thanks. So we can kind of make up for neuroticism within our own personality structure. If we're high in conscientiousness, can I conclude that? I guess I could be a little bit, I, I could be safer when I say, okay. I don't think we can label any trait as good or bad. It's not a, a dichotomy. We treat these as dimensional aspects. And I think under some context, high neuroticism could be good. There's some early research that shows, you know, highly neurotic children living in unsafe environments do better than children that have the low neuroticism. That, that high neuroticism is protective to keep them out of danger. So it just goes to show you that this it's good or bad, but I don't know. I might be able to just go on a, a ledge and say that high conscientiousness is good. I don't think we have any evidence to say that that higher is not good. I know some folks say, well, if it's too high, maybe you have obsessive compulsive disorder, but I haven't seen any good evidence of that. If I could put any money on it, I'd say just keep boosting conscientiousness up in people and, and we'll, we'll have a, a healthier society potentially. What I just want to add to this is also like, I feel like in, in health psychology, it's Yes, neuroticism and conscientiousness seem to be the strongest predictors, right? But we also have the other traits. And I'm speaking of extroversion, openness, and agreeableness. And so maybe even if you are um, high on neuroticism, but maybe you are also very high on openness and very high on extroversion. And in the cognitive aging literature, we also know that high openness can be protective because you tend to engage in intellectual activities or high extroversion, you probably have a larger social network, maybe also more social support, which also can be beneficial regarding cognitive decline. So I think sometimes we tend to focus on these single findings, but um, in real life, it's not that we all have only one trait in real life. So I think that there is something to do with the facets, uh, because, for example, neuroticism as a broader trait is associated with worse outcomes in general and in the broader sense. But maybe, on, for example, the facets related to anxiety are more negative than facets, for example, related to worry. That is, maybe in some cases, the facets worry, the facets related to worry could be protective, whereas the facets related to anxiety within neuroticism could be damaging. 
that is um, not only there, there is a question of the world profile and the person-centered approach combining the five traits together and trying to examine whether the traits interact with each other to predict outcome but there is also the question of the facets maybe some facets of neuroticism are more beneficial than others Whereas, whereas some facets are more negative than others. This is also a, an important question in the field, I think. We've touched on a lot of important questions for the future and when some of us are already uh, retired. But um, what are the big research questions that you hope to answer in the future, that you plan to answer in the future? There are actually many interesting research questions, but um, one of the broad ones that I have is to examine the temporal course or the timing of personality along the cognitive continuum. So the cognitive continuum can be divided into the cognitively unimpaired stage which can be with or without subjective cognitive decline, and then mild cognitive impairment, dementia, which, which can be further divided into mild, moderate, and severe. And what we know based on the current data and literature is that personality seems to be a risk or protective factor before the onset of dementia, but then with or especially after the onset of dementia, personality changes. So the mo most common changes are increases in neuropathism and declines in extroversion and conscientiousness. And um, I'm really interested in the how, when, and why personality changes. And uh, yeah, the specifics about um, of personality along the cognitive continuum. What I'm thinking about uh, for the future is what do we do with all this info? I think about when I left my grad program and got to my postdoc and I was working at the University of Rochester Medical Center in psychiatry and in behavioral health a little bit. And I thought, okay, I finally have access to doctors, physicians, actually on the ground seeing patients. And like, I am going to get my personality assessments involved in their treatment and tailoring, you know, treatment recommendations, interventions based on that. And I hit a brick wall. And it wasn't because of anyone at Rochester that was, you know, being short-sighted. They were just saying, I'm a physician and I have X amount of time in that room with a patient. I have to do this, this, and that, and that's reimbursed by insurance. I don't have time to do anything else. And I kind of scratched my head and was just like, well, well, I really think personality and understanding who your patient is will help you better treat them. So how do we get that ingrained in? And, and I still have this kind of idea of we could have this more personalized medicine or precision medicine. I forget what the buzzword is these days. But like, I, I just see that as such a benefit to physicians, but how do we demonstrate that it can help? And it all comes back to money. If we can show that this saves money to insurance companies, that is the way we're going to be able to fill my dream of, of using personality assessment to inform care. And, and I think that's something that I, I will not be able to retire until I somehow address. Whether it works or not, I don't mind as long as I try. I think that now we know that we have strong replicable evidence about the link between personality and health and cognition and the extent to which personality contributes to health and cognition across adulthood and old age. And I think that now we have to better understand how it works. 
why personality is related in such consistent way to health and cognition, what are the different pathways through which this uh, association operates. This is what I'm obsessed with <laughs> for now, before my retirement. I think also, if I can add something, we can learn more by investigating more systematically the facets of the traits. That is, there is little evidence about the role of facets. There is some research, but we need to do more about the facet level approach, but also about the nuances. The nuances sound really promising to predict else and to gain more information about the specific aspects of personality that are likely to play a role for health and cognition across adulthood and old age. Thank you so much. Are there any misconceptions either in the field or in the broader public that maybe you read in a newspaper and you're like, oh, that's not true, <laughs> that you want to address? I will start with this question because this is something I'm dealing with on a daily basis with my students when I'm talking about the link between personality and health, that is the extent to which, for example, having a high level of neuroticism is um, like an inevitably associated to mortality. I think that there is a misconception sometimes in the public, uh, including our students, uh, about the extent to which personality is related to uh, outcomes like mortality or dementia, that is being having a high level of neuroticism is not inevitably associated to mortality. And I think that this is something we have to work on to better specify that personality is related to the risk of mortality, to the risk of dementia, but is not inevitably associated with such outcomes. I wouldn't say it's a misconception, but maybe a bit of an underestimation or lack of recognition, um, at least in when it comes to risk of dementia, about the predictive power of personality. So we have conducted a meta-analysis and we showed that higher neuroticism and lower conscientiousness were associated about a 25% increased risk of dementia. And these effect sizes are comparable to what other meta-analyses show for diabetes, physical activity, hyperintentions. I feel like it's often a lot of talk is on the clinical or behavioral factor and not so much about personality. And of course, then the discussion goes further that is maybe shared variants or so that personality is related to these factors. But still, um, I feel sometimes there is a bit of an underestimation, at least in the medical literature. One of the misconceptions that still bothers me to this day is individuals that think that personality doesn't change, that it's, it's all genetic. You are what your parents were, and there's no malleability whatsoever after, you know, young infancy. And to me, that just goes against everything of why we're studying this. We're not studying personality and health just because it's cool and it's fun to find these associations. We think that understanding these processes, we could eventually go in and intervene potentially at the, the personality level. And for folks to just disregard all of this literature that shows that personality changes and those changes happen even into the 70s and 80s, that irritates me a little bit. And there are just, you know, I wouldn't say that there's two camps on some people think this or that. I'm talking about the general public and they think that, oh, well, I don't need to do anything about myself. This is who I am. 
don't try to change me. You know, I, I can't. And that's simply not true. Definitely malleable. But it goes back to what others were saying earlier that, you know, people have to want to see that personality change or any change in their life. So convincing folks of that is going to be important for the future of this field. I would add also another misconception, which is that personality doesn't exist. Sometimes people ask, but does personality really exist? Can we admit that personality exists? Is, is there something which is more environmental or familial? Or Yes, personality exists. It could change. It predicts a lot of outcomes. There's no question about that. But this is a public, sometimes a public misconception that is personality doesn't exist. Thank you so much. So for my last question, I was wondering if you have changed aspects of your personal life based on your evidence. Like in my mind, you're all like super fit, conscientious people. <laughs> Indirectly over the years, just understanding more about neuroticism and, you know, the negative consequences, rumination and just stewing about problems in your life. And I think that has been the most impactful on my life to kind of think about how I react and whether it's a work stressor, a family stressor to like not let it perturb me and to address it and, and kind of have better emotion regulation skills. And I don't think I, I think about this on a daily basis, but when I, when you ask that question, I, I really do think that my research and understanding how these processes work, I, I can kind of look at my life and be like, yeah, I have subtly changed the way I, I react to the challenges of everyday life. And there's a lot of them. I don't think I have changed something specifically, but I have definitely become more self-reflective about my own personality. What you said, well, I sometimes go for a run. It actually helps me to detach from work. So maybe that's some kind of coping with stress or so. But when you read all that literature and you know, oh, yeah, I should go for a walk every day. I should eat my five portions of veggies and fruit. I should take vitamins. I should do blah, 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 blah. The list is uh, almost non-ending, right? And who can actually do that on an everyday basis? So sometimes it helps me also to think about the concept of inter-individual and intra-individual variability, meaning there are differences between people, but also more importantly, there are differences between days. So rather than stressing out and trying to go for a walk after a hectic day, I tell myself, well, calm down. Not every day has to be the same. Relax now. So I don't know, maybe this is some kind of self-reflection or um, maybe also mindfulness or so. But yeah, that's what I would add to this. Speaking about me as a fit person is just a misconception. During a long time, I've tried to uh, keep a distance between my research on personality and my own life. But now that I'm older, I try to make effort, for example, on emotion regulation. But also what I've learned is the impact that daily behaviors could have on our personality traits. And I mean the positive impact, for example, of physical activity, of quitting smoking, of trying to be reasonable and responsible with regard to uh, alcohol consumption. All these researches of this field has uh, an impact of my own lifestyle. That is, 
I try to regulate my negative emotions because I'm, I, I think I have a high level of neuroticism, but also I try to adopt um, a healthy lifestyle with, at the implicit or explicit level, I don't know, with the purpose of being less neurotic or more conscientious, but at least for sure to be lower in neuroticism and to regulate my stress and so on. Super. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for being part of the episode and answering my question. This was delightful and really interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, yeah, everybody. This was for... fun. It's good to yes. see all of you. Yeah, Perfect. it was great.